Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. In the summer of 2014, 18-year-old Jack Letts left his home in Oxford, England and headed to the Middle East. He'd recently become Muslim and was hoping to learn more about his faith. Well, we were quite supportive of him um, learning about Islam. He was already he uh, very fluent in Arabic. He taught himself the language. So he'd been looking for courses uh, while he was still in the UK to study. And so we paid for his, his ticket to go visit a friend in Jordan, first of all, and then for him to do this course. From Jordan, he then headed to Kuwait to take courses in Islamic studies and Arabic. In September of that year, he called his parents with an update. And then he, for some idiotic reason, which he admits himself was the stupidest thing he's ever done in his life, he wanted to go to Syria to see what he could do, um, how he could help in the civil war, um, the, you know, the, the Arab Spring uprising against Assad. Those protests against President Bashar al-Assad were ill-fated as they were for Jack Letts himself. Jack, a dual British-Canadian citizen, was captured by Kurdish forces in 2017, and he's been sitting in a Kurdish prison in northeast Syria ever since. They change what they're saying, but uh, they always tell me that they're just waiting for the my, my government. In January 2018, he had a chance to speak by phone with a consular official from Global Affairs Canada. She wanted to know how he was doing and what his conditions were. And supposedly I'm here this whole time because the government is taking too long to come and get me. Jack said the Kurds would give him updates about his release, but nothing definitive. Recordings of Jack's voice from that conversation were turned over to his family. And then, uh, about six months ago, they told me that I can't speak anymore with the phone. So, yeah, for six months, I have absolutely no idea what's happening. The last time they told me anything about what we're doing, they just said, OK, at the, uh, the new year, when the, the new year starts, which is, it's been like nine days since that started, uh, there's going to be new steps, there's going to be new uh, procedures. We haven't seen absolutely anything. In fact, uh, it's gotten worse since the the end of the... The year, it's gotten a lot worse. So I have no idea what's happening. I mean, what are the next steps? They, they, have, they, they told me there are new steps happening, and we don't even know what it is. That's what they say. So how am I supposed to know what it is? Jack Letts is now 27. His mother, Sally Lane, moved to Ottawa and has been campaigning for his repatriation to Canada. Jack's citizenship was stripped in 2019 and the British Foreign Office told me that there was no point in speaking to them anymore. I should speak to the Canadians. Um, so I took a boat over here because I'm on the, the no-fly list. In January 2023, 
The Canadian government was ordered by the federal court to bring back all Canadians detained in northeast Syria. So far, a small group of Canadian mothers and their children have returned. But the government is resisting bringing back Jack Letts, several other Canadian men, and non-Canadian mothers and their Canadian children. The conditions he's in are appalling. They, um, the UN has described them as being akin to torture. In one Red Cross letter to me, he said that he had forgotten what the sun looks like. Jack Letts's family and lawyers have never seen any evidence against him. He exists in two contradictory realities where he's both seemingly innocent of any wrongdoing and yet somehow too guilty to be brought home. In the UK, hundreds of British nationals have quietly returned from Syria, but not Jack. Sally traces the public fury over her son to a nickname. The British government have accused him of being a jihadi, but that is based on uh, an assertion by a journalist who worked for the Sunday Times, who, this journalist came round to our house, uh, wrote a piece soon afterwards saying that Jack had told us that he had joined ISIS in a telephone call, uh, which is not true. Uh, But... He, this particular journalist, wrote uh, an article with the term Jihadi Jack, and uh, and it's based on that. That 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 um, term has has gone around the world, and we've been fighting ever since to say there's actually no evidence. The police themselves have said they have no evidence that Jack has done anything wrong. Five years since he left Britain, and today the man known as Jihadi Jack learned of the British government's attempts to stop him coming back. Jack Letts went to Syria in 2014, but was arrested as he apparently tried to leave. ITV News met him this morning and told him he'd been stripped of his British citizenship. Uh, We had a letter that he was stripped of his citizenship. Uh, It was supposed to be delivered to Jack, but um, they sent it to his last known address, which was our house in Oxford. And um, But it was actually, the news was actually delivered to Jack himself by a news crew who um, wanted to get his reaction on camera. Obviously, this new to me. I didn't actually know this until just now. But I'm not surprised. You know, I was expecting something like this, to be honest. And I've been here for two and a half years. They haven't helped me at all. The British government, even if they didn't strip me of my British citizenship, it's almost as if I'm not a British citizen anyway. Unlike in the UK, Canada doesn't revoke citizenship over national security concerns. But it still sees Jack Letts as a security threat, leaving him and others like him in a kind of limbo, a state of banishment with no apparent resolution. So what does this all say about what it means to be a citizen? Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa brings us this documentary, Citizenship, a Right or a Privilege? I was genuinely amazed that they let me speak to anyone. I I expected that when they gave me the phone, I expected it was my mum that I was going to be speaking to. Then uh, you said you were from the government. Not that I wasn't happy. I'm I'm even happy just to speak to someone in English. and, And hopefully you guys can help me. So I was amazed that they even let me speak to anyone because if if even my mum, they won't let me speak to her. 
Other than that, I think you guys would have to request to say, uh, you know, we want to speak to him, for them to let you. Because when I request, no one listens to me. I, I sent them, when I was in solitary, for example, I used to write letters to the, the management, etc. Right, man, in the last one, I even I signed it with, this is going to sound really weird, but I, I signed it with my own blood. So I was, uh, I scratched my face. Uh, <coughs> I signed it with my, my blood because I thought maybe they might listen. They didn't listen, no one listens. Eventually, eventually they let me out solitary. But as for uh, speaking on the phone, etc., I thought I, I should just forget it. Jack has always been very lively, very expressive, very dramatic, always, he was always the center of attention, you know, he was always kind of like the joke cracker. And um, he always had a very large circle of friends, you know, and people just tended to like Jack, really. Um, And... um, he just, he was just exuberant, I think, is probably the best way to describe him, and talkative, you know. Um, and even throughout all of this, you know, throughout the conversion, you know, he was still the same old Jack, you know, he'd still joke and, you know, do impressions of his teachers and and things like that. So that's that's the Jack I know, and that's the, the, the Jack that his friends know as well. And they've his friends in England have actually joined the campaign in a more vigorous way recently because since the first court judgment, they thought, you know, they will see Jack soon. Um, so they've been posting things on Twitter and saying, you know, they can't wait to see him again. Um, so, yeah, that, that, and then that, and that keeps me going as well. In 2017, when he was actually captured, we had more communication with him in that time than we had in the previous few years and so we actually found out things that um, we hadn't known about before um the, the the shock is when all that finished and now we just have to imagine what he's doing i i have no idea how he spends his day i know that um he was desperate to get his hands on his uh, on a book just any book um and um he finally got one uh was about the second world war and because he had nothing else to read he read the book five times um and um i do remember the strange reaction we had by a local magistrate in oxford who was also a a, a neighbor of ours i told her that jack had finally found a book in prison and uh she said oh don't don't let people i wouldn't let people know that he's actually reading about war and I thought, how strange is that? Um, you know, he's desperate to read anything. I mean, you know, he's he's got a very lively mind, and and I, I'm actually worried more about his mental deterioration than his physical deterioration um, because it's it's sensory deprivation. You know, he's not. Um, he's got people to talk to. It's only as far as I know, apart from that one incident that we know about where he was in solitary confinement. Honestly, if uh, and I explained to you how my situation was, you'd be surprised. And I spent, this is one example only, I spent 35 days in a room that's slight, <coughs> slightly taller than I am, and about half that width-wise, uh, with no toilet, with no nothing, 35 days.
At one point in his phone conversation with the consular official, Jack said he, quote, started to go insane. I thought dying was better than my mother seeing me insane. So I tried to hang myself. His Kurdish guards found him in time. After that, he was moved into a cell with other people. The conditions he's in are appalling. They, um, the UN has described them as being akin to torture. And um, the last we heard from him in terms of conditions was in 2017. Um, uh, well, that directly from him. Um, and, um, and then he also had a conversation with the Canadian government in January 2018 where he described the conditions. And he said that he was in a very overcrowded cell. It was meant for eight people, but there were 40 people in it, uh, that he was rarely, if ever, uh, let out of his cell. Um, in one Red Cross letter to me, he said that he had forgotten what the sun looks like. Um the Red Cross letters that we do have are censored of any mention of conditions and the Red Cross have told me that they're not allowed to pass on any information because they don't want to jeopardise their neutrality. Jack Lutz was captured by Kurdish forces when he fled Raqqa in May 2017. He told his mother he'd ended up in the city in 2015 when the home he was staying in was hit by a missile. He was reading a book, and uh, just before the house was hit, he moved over to the other side of the room. He said if he hadn't moved, uh, he would have been flower. Um, and then the nearest hospital at the time was in Raqqa, so he said his friends bundled him up, uh, took him in the car to Raqqa uh, to, to hospital, and um, he was there for the next uh about a year and a half. Um, when he was in Raqqa, his messages became very different. It was almost as if it wasn't the same person. And we thought, we realized that he was having to be very careful about what he said, that there were people overhearing him, etc. And so it was only when he got out of ISIS territories that he became himself again. He said, you know, I've now got a phone of somebody who um, is is anti-ISIS and, you know, now I can speak freely. Um, unfortunately, that was soon, soon after that he was um, captured by the Kurds. I think they understand that my case isn't here. I'm not Syrian. I think they expect someone to come take me and put, press charges against me in, in my own country because no one's tried to put me in a a court or anything like this. I I don't want to do a court here. I wouldn't accept any, even when it when it's been mentioned about going to court here. I say I'm not going to go. I refuse. This is not my country. I'm not going to do anything here. Uh, they've investigated me. They've asked me questions, and I told them that which I know. In those early days after his capture, Sally Lane spoke to Jack regularly. She uses the word joyous to describe the tone of those conversations. Her son had been told his release was imminent, and he thought it would only be a matter of days before he'd be back in England. And so that's what we were planning for. Um, you know, we were telling our friends and relations that finally Jack's coming back. Then suddenly, just a couple of months later, all communication ceased. The way it stopped was terrifying because Jack had said that he was afraid of 
torture, that um, he knew that um, if bad things were going to happen to him. And then suddenly all contact was broken off. And we, and, and so we scrambled around for information from then, you know, foreign office, reprieve, NGOs, politicians, journalists, anyone we could think of, and um, nothing. Since those phone calls stopped, Sally has received letters from her son through the Red Cross, eight in the last six years, and often heavily redacted. May 7th, 2018. To mum, this is the first opportunity I've had in almost a year, after a period in which I feel I've died a number of times. I sometimes hear English voices here and realise how easy it would be to take me from here to Turkey. To be honest, I received your letter after more than a year, therefore everything I plan to say to you no longer makes much sense. I apologise for how ridiculous this letter probably seems after more than a year, but the opportunity to write to you came as a surprise. I wasn't ready, like I said. I no longer think I'm going to leave here. Please remember me as a good person who wanted to steal from the rich and give to the poor. Also, I see you in my dreams a lot, Mum, you and Dad. Please accept my apology. Also, do not believe anything the Kurds say. Finally, all I want to begin with is to be able to speak to you guys. So if you can request just phone calls, etc., maybe they'll accept. Jack Letts is one of almost 42,000 foreigners detained in northeast Syria. Sally belongs to an international support group for families with members from all over, including Canada, Sweden, Denmark, Trinidad, Morocco, the United States, Britain, Australia, and Germany. They update each other on efforts to bring home their siblings and children and grandchildren. They talk about what their governments have and have not done to help. Sally's been trying to free her son from his indefinite detention for six years now. There are no trials or inquiries to determine whether anyone has, in fact, done anything wrong. The only trial so far has been her own. In 2015, Sally and her husband John sent Jack 223 pounds sterling through an intermediary in Lebanon so Jack could leave Raqqa and make his way out of Syria. Not only did the money not go through, they were arrested and charged with three counts of entering into a funding arrangement for the purposes of terrorism. We were then put on trial. It took three and a half years for the trial to actually come to court at the Old Bailey. We were then, we were charged with uh, funding terrorism. Um, The wording of terrorism legislation is very broad. Uh, The expression, relevant expression, is a reasonable cause to suspect that the money might be used to fund terrorist activities. And really what that means is any money sent to Syria at that time is seen to be suspicious and um, possibly destined for uh, terrorism activity. And so it's, it's very difficult to get an innocent a verdict and so we were we were found guilty on one of the three counts which ironically was the count that we weren't even arrested for 
Um, and then also we both have restrictions on us for the next 10 years in terms of being monitored by the police, having to report any change in our circumstance, like email address or hiring a car or new bank account, that sort of thing. Uh, and um, I have escaped most of those restrictions by uh, moving to Canada, although John is still subject to them. The most onerous onerous one is um, the financial restriction because we're both on a financial blacklist, which makes, uh, well, particularly John, uh, makes his business activities very difficult. I have no access to the internet. I'm not even allowed to speak to my mum. I don't even know my mum is in prison or out of prison. I wanted to ask you that, actually. Is my mum in prison? That's a, a serious question. Uh, it's been seven months or six months since I've been allowed to speak to anyone. This, you're the first person I spoke to in about six months. December 23rd, 2020. My dear mother, Due to the bizarre situation we are all in, I am still unable to explain the reality of what has occurred in these last six painful years. I wait to see you all with fierce avidity. Asterix, I've been studying Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South, have you read it, with my friend, which gave me somewhat a vocabulary boost. And although it has seemed increasingly unlikely recently, I hope to see the truth made apparent and justice done. My eyes well up with tears as I imagine I'm meeting you again one sunny day. Never think your efforts go unnoticed or that I'm unthankful for everything you do. We are here for a reason, Mum, and it could be the very thing you most detest at the moment that finally gives you rest and puts everything in perspective. Never give up, Mum, not for me in general. Know that I will always be your loyal son, whatever happens. The idea of walking with you in Ottawa and telling you my stories seems so beautifully impossible. I hope one day to live it. I think um, people need to think that this could happen to them. We know that, um, you know, their loved one could be abroad and um, denied their rights, deny, you know, banished, really, put into exile with no chance of um, clearing their name even. And I certainly never thought my family would be in this situation. Jack had no idea what 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 would happen to him after he went to Syria. It was it was an impetuous thing. He jumped on the plane and you know there he was and then he spent years trying to row back from a very very stupid mistake and no one is allowing him to row back from that. I think the only way that Jack will ever get a fair hearing is if he is repatriated and um, whatever evidence the government thinks that they have against him can be brought out in the open. But at the moment, there have been no uh, charges. Um, there haven't even really been any official allegations. And so how can he possibly defend himself? There's no possibility of trials in the region. That that was an idea that was kicked around for a number of years, but the UN has made it clear that um, it doesn't support it. Tell my mum I'm sorry. Tell my dad I'm sorry. Tell them, if I ever get out of this place, I'm going to try and be a better person. I'm going to try and set right what I did wrong, if that makes sense. 
You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Over the past two decades, the guardrails around Canadian citizenship have grown weaker. I think the place to start with this is really post-9-11. When we saw first what I'll call the securitization of immigration, the idea that came to the fore was always sort of present but now became the dominant uh, lens through which immigration was understood was as a potential threat to the security of the nation. This securitization made certain people suspect asylum seekers, refugees, immigrants. It became more difficult for them to get citizenship and eventually harder to retain it. And one of the ways that citizenship has been made fragile is by the state arrogating to itself the power to take it away from people. So often being on the territory of a country, being able to enter and remain in that country is kind of the ticket to enjoying all the other rights that you might imagine, the rights that are set out in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But the ordinary ways of participating in communal life in a place depend at least on the ability to be present and often on being physically present. So if you take away somebody's citizenship and you take away their right to enter and remain, you have in effect stripped them of not just the right to enter and remain, but access to all those other rights as well. Experts say it's this gradual weakening of citizenship rights that helped lay the groundwork for the tug of war over Canadian detainees in northeastern Syria. We're calling this episode Citizenship, a Right or a Privilege. My name is Audrey Macklin. I'm a professor of law, chair of human rights, and the director of the Center for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at University of Toronto. There was and remains such a focus on the idea that those who pose uh, alleged threats to national security are almost by definition not us. Um, And there's a whole kind of narrative around that. The threats to us come from them, they are outside. They are outside the polity, either literally, geographically, or they may be inside, but they're not really us. They are other, they are outsiders. That kind of thinking was both uh, so prevalent and so sort of cultivated by some political actors and media post 9-11 that the move to say, well, they may be legal citizens, but they're not really us. Let us reveal them to be alien to us as they must be because they are a danger to national security or whatever, perceived to be that way. But the other part of it was a kind of resort to a cliche that's been around for a long time, this idea that citizenship is a privilege, not a right. And if you abuse, as it were, that privilege by behaving in ways 
or allegedly behaving in ways or just living your life in a way that um, is not the that the state distrusts, that the state regards as a risk to its national security, then you have, in a sense, um, exposed yourself to having that privilege taken away from you. And so this idea that citizenship is a privilege, not a right, really surged to the fore. I suppose one of the things that has been repeated throughout this period, which was novel um, early on in sort of the early 2000s, but has become kind of a an everyday flagging way of talking about citizenship, is the Home Office repeating its line that citizenship is a privilege, not a right. My name is Nisha Kapoor, and I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University of Warwick. In terms of how that institution of citizenship has been ordinarily understood uh, or or nominally understood in, in a liberal democratic state, that statement is quite a shift in you know how citizenship has, has been defined vis-a-vis the state. I think one of the things that's happened through the war on terror is the kind of normalization of this idea that citizenship is a more precarious institution or should be dependent on the behavior of individuals, however that might be kind of defined or deemed by the state. And of course, that has implications in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of class for the the kinds of people who are more likely to to come under, uh, to be regarded as suspect or to be susceptible to to scrutiny and to have their citizenship, you know, in, in terms of whose citizenship is made more precarious as a result. And so I, I think there's a kind of broader change in the the way in which the institution of citizenship has come to be characterized. When we say in kind of the vernacular sense, citizenship is a privilege, not a right, I think a lot of people have in mind that they feel fortunate and privileged to be a citizen of this country. Uh, Canada's a good place to live. I'm lucky to have been born in Canada. I'm fortunate to be a citizen and enjoy all the benefits of this place. I feel privileged to be a citizen of Canada. You know, I owe something to Canada and so on. That's that's one thing. But there's another understanding of privilege and right that exists in law. And in law, a privilege is something that belongs to the sovereign, not to you as the individual. And it's something that can be granted, withheld, offered taken away, in some sense, almost arbitrarily. And when you understand citizenship as a privilege in that legal sense, then you are saying that citizenship doesn't belong to the citizen, it belongs to the state. And that's a really dangerous idea. Because what it means is that everybody becomes vulnerable to the state stripping them of their very fundamental and basic Uh, entitlements as a citizen. And so here is where it's important to say this manipulation or this instrumentalization of this cliche, citizenship is a privilege, not a right, was used almost paradoxically to make citizenship weaker by turning it from something that I hold and that can't be taken away from me, a strong right, into something that is fragile and revocable and liable to being stripped away by the state. In the early days of the kind of war on terror, the British press started a campaign against radical extremists, that it's uh, Islamist extremists, that it ceases being present in the UK as it's kind of 
Um, and, and there's a, a real conflation at this time between asylum seekers and terrorists. And in the context of 9-11, um, broad public consensus for a stronger uh, state response to figures who, who might be uh, deemed to be a threat to national security. And the, the, the British press starts a campaign against Abu Hamza, an Islamist cleric that's actually a British citizen. And the press calls for his deportation. He can't be deported because he's a British citizen. And um, the papers, The Sun and a series of other uh, populist papers start a campaign asking for something to be done. The Home Secretary at the time, David Blunkett, receives a raft of letters from the public asking for uh, Abu Hamza to be deported. And David Blunkett understands that something needs to be done. So there's uh, some immigration legislation that's passed in 2002 and an amendment is included, which allows for the deprivation of citizenship, even of birthright citizens, if their presence is considered prejudicial to um, the UK's interests. And the amendment is unofficially referred to amongst lawyers as the Hamza Amendment because it's in his name that the, the law is passed and it's, it's against him that the law is first used. And then progressively over this period, that legislation is enhanced again and again against a number of Muslims who are deemed uh, or identified as kind of national security threats. So in, in 2006, um, there are additional powers passed which allow for deprivation to happen if it's deemed to be conducive to the public good. And in 2014, in response to the case of a guy called Halal al-Jeda, who's an Iraqi, a British Iraqi, uh, who travels to Iraq and is detained by British authorities in Basra for three years and actually wins a court case against the British state in the European Court of Human Rights um, for his detention. A month before he's released, he's uh, stripped of his citizenship. And because he's not in the country, it makes it, he doesn't find out about his deprivation and it's difficult to appeal. Uh, he actually wins his appeal and the British state pass a further piece of legislation because of the difficulty they've had in stripping him of his citizenship, allowing for them to deprive an individual of citizenship, even if they don't have another form of citizenship, arguing if there's a possibility that they could apply for citizenship elsewhere, but they haven't, um, you know, then that's not their problems. And it's the same piece of legislation that's used in the case of Shamima Begum. So we have now the situation where you you know, the British state has has deprived individuals of their citizenship, even if they don't have any other form of citizenship making people stateless. In the years immediately after 9-11, Canada used immigration laws to pursue non-citizens it deemed a threat. But it also weakened the institution of citizenship itself by changing citizens into non-citizens. In 2014, the government passed a law to strip citizenship from individuals it considered a threat to national security, thus paving the way to removing them from Canada. The law was repealed in 2017, and that shift made Canada part of a small minority of countries bucking the trend of expanding state powers to denationalize their citizens. But some argue the spirit of that law lingers on and continues to make citizenship for some people even more precarious. You know, I think the example of what's happening in northeast Syria shows that in some ways these sections are still actually being applied, but sort of silently and subtly. 
Uh, my name is Asiya Hirji, and I am a lawyer with Downtown Legal Services, which is the community legal aid clinic, which is affiliated with the University of Toronto. So I represent two non-Canadian mothers, uh, each of whom has three Canadian citizen children. The Canadian citizenship has been passed on by their father. The father's of both of the families has not been present in the children's lives or their spouse's life for four or five years at least. The, all of the six children have been subject to repatriation offers by the government of Canada. The repatriation offer extends only to the children, so not mom. And so the offer is to bring the Canadian children to Canada, but the moms have to stay where they are. It's this notion that you have violated national security, we assume. There's this assumption that you've done a bad thing, you're a bad citizen, and so we can't revoke your citizenship, but we're going to do it in other subtle ways. So we're not going to return you. And when we're fought against that point, we are going to fight you tooth and nail at every level of the court. We are going to provide whatever documents we need to the court to be able to establish that it is unsafe for us to be able to do that. The way in which uh, the UK, for example, has used denationalization is not as punishment for a crime. In fact, you don't have to be accused, charged, much less convicted of a crime to have your citizenship stripped. All that's required is that a minister think that it is conducive to the public good to revoke your citizenship. That already gives you an idea of how vulnerable citizenship is. You can't put somebody in jail for a week without proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet, you can strip someone of citizenship, not by a judge, not by an independent judiciary, but by a political actor, a minister, a member of the executive, deciding on the basis of something as vague as your citizenship does not conduce to the public good. So that's sort of one thing to keep in mind. Our criminal justice system, right, significantly does not revoke people's citizenship as punishment for being a bad citizen. And let's assume for the moment people who commit serious crimes, let's say in the you know generic sense, we might say they're bad citizens. But what do you do with bad citizens? Well, you punish them, you try to rehabilitate them, and you reintegrate them into society. That's the story we tell. We don't go with so-called ordinary criminal criminals. We don't go from bad citizen to not citizen. The move of denationalization is to say, if you are a bad citizen, you will become not a citizen. I think it's antithetical to who we are as Canadians. I mean, I mean, I, I think the question is like, are we okay? Would we be okay with a Canadian in Canada being suspected of having engaged in some atrocious criminal behavior and being in jail without a trial indefinitely? I mean, no, we wouldn't be okay with that. So why are we okay with it here? Is it because we don't see it? Is it because we can't really see inside these jails and we can't see that there's, you know, five or six times the amount of people who are crammed in a cell with very little food and no access to medical care? Is that okay? So we, we turn a blind eye because it's outside of our backyard? I think that's really what's happening here, right? It's sort of out of sight, out of mind, because we wouldn't be okay with it if it were happening on our soil. The figures for citizenship deprivation are supposed to be regularly published, but they're not. And when I published the book, it, citizenship deprivation measures had been used about 70 times. And most of that had been since 2010 um, under the conservative government that came into power um, at that time. And I was looking again to see 
what an update on on the figures were. And they haven't been published in the last couple of years, but the government did release figures early this year. And for national security cases, uh, it's like 220 or something. It's, you know, it's well over 200. And so since 2016, that, that figure has tripled. And again, you're correct. It's only a small number of cases relative to the population. But it's quite startling to see how, and I think if we look at fraudulent cases, it's over 700. But, uh, you know, and that in itself is interesting because that was never used the way it has been, um, you know, is being used um, more recently. So even though relatively it's only a small number of cases, it has, it does expand the possibility of it being used elsewhere. We see the kinds of um, national security measures um, that the state was using in some contexts being extended to broader criminal cases. And, and I, I suppose I don't think we should underestimate the seriousness of what it means when these measures come on to the books. Um, because there is always a possibility of the, them being expanded, and uh, and they they are that it's already happening. Um, and and though I I agree, I don't think that most people are going to be subject to citizenship deprivation. It only intended for a small number of people, as showing the possibility of the limit of what can be done. But it does change the institution of citizenship as a whole for everybody. Now. With respect to the numbers, it's true that the numbers of people stripped of citizenship in the UK, which has kind of revived the practice and has sort of uh, made it, (laughs) brought it back as a popular practice, it's still tiny. The numbers are small, but they are virtually all Muslim men. And what that does is uh, go well beyond the particular harms inflicted on Muslim men and a few Muslim women, like, for example, Shamima Begum. It draws on what some people call the expressive function of law, which is to say the enforcement of law not only has an effect on the direct object of its enforcement, but it expresses something to the wider community. And in particular, the racialization of denationalization, right, the ways in which it is directed at Muslims predominantly, sends a message to the community at large and to Muslim members of the community in particular that they are lesser citizens. Their citizenship is always precarious. And even if the vast majority of people have no literal fear of having their citizenship revoked, they are all recipients of this message. They are all at the pointy end of this expressive function of law telling them and telling everybody who counts, who's a real member of society, who's a real citizen, and whose citizenship is permanently and in some sense existentially suspect. I mean, I think this is the issue, right, is that as much as I know about the men that are detained, I don't think that there's a tremendous prospect for Canada to revoke their citizenship, right, because the only grounds for revocation now are really this misrepresentation on the acquisition of your permanent residence or your citizenship which doesn't exist for anyone other than naturalized citizens. So this is the next best thing, right? We're, we're not going to take it away, but we're not going to give it to you either, really, right? We're, we're not going to give you your Section 6 rights. We're not going to give you your mobility rights. 
And and then if your Section 7 rights are violated, well, that's not our fault. You know, you're, you're, you're in another place. We don't have jurisdiction over you. And so that's fine. And Section 7 rights are? Uh, Section 7 rights are life, liberty, and security of the person. So yeah, I guess, I, I guess it's this sort of like backdoor way of getting at the same goal, right? We can't. We can't revoke your citizenship. Probably we sure would if we could, but now we can't. It'll be interesting to see if, as a result of this, if there's more amendments that are made to the legislation to sort of bring back this idea of revocation based on national security. Something else, I think, that is worth noting about citizenship revocation is the impact it has on other countries that don't practice citizenship revocation. So normally you think, uh, if the law is a good idea for this country, it is, should be a good idea for other countries as well. If, if the UK thinks citizenship revocation is a great idea for securing its, na- you know, its nation against perceived threats externally, then I guess it ought to be a good idea for all countries to do it. So the United Kingdom feels able to revoke citizenship from people who have a second citizenship, or sometimes even now, if the UK thinks they could get a second citizenship. So if every country did that, then in each case where you have a dual national, then I guess what you're proposing is that every state should be in a race to the bottom. So to give an example, Jack Letts is somebody that the UK alleged or accused of being involved in terrorism activities. He was uh, born in the UK to uh, UK citizen parents, one of whom was also a Canadian citizen. Uh, Jack Letts uh, then went to Syria and was ale- you know, alleged to have gotten involved there in activities um, that were uh, linked to terrorism. These allegations have never been proven, of course, but leave that aside for the moment just to say um, what the UK did was strip citizenship of Jack Letts because he had also Canadian citizenship. Well, so if Canada had retained its own citizenship revocation law, then what? Then it would just have been a contest as to who could have stripped citizenship from Jack Letts first, and to the so-called loser goes the citizen. There's a kind of absurdity to that that should make one think, wait, this is not actually a policy that is appropriate to a kind of international system of interstate cooperation on issues like terrorism or national security. And indeed, a lot of people were quite unhappy that uh, the UK stripped citizenship from Jack Letts and that therefore his only remaining citizenship is Canadian and therefore he's a Canadian citizen with an entitlement to enter and remain in Canada. And people, some people thought, well, that's terrible. Jack Letts should not be allowed to enter Canada. The problem is not Jack Letts being able to enter Canada. The direct, you know, one should be directing one's concern to why is the UK entitled to do this in the first place? Because if you think of somebody like him, I think, well, in what sense does Jack Letts, whoever he is as a young man, belong more to Canada than to the UK. He grew up in the UK, was born there, raised there. And the UK apparently thinks that because he went off to Syria, he allegedly is no longer a good citizen and therefore should have his citizenship stripped. And the logic of that then is some idea of citizenship has content. It's not enough to just have a UK passport. You have to be a good citizen. And if you if you are seen to be somebody whose attitude, belief, or values are hostile to the values, beliefs, and so on of the UK, then somehow that's a justification for removing citizenship. 
But if that's the case, on what basis should he, should the UK say he belongs to Canada? The basis upon which the UK says that is he has a parent who's a uh, Canadian citizen. And so they're playing a double game, right? On the one hand, they're very concerned about the content of citizenship and whether one is a good or bad citizen for their own purposes of stripping it. But when it comes to, well, then where is he a citizen? He's a citizen wherever he has that formal passport. And you see that kind of uh, gaming of the system that states do. You know, there's been this vast body of literature that's that's talked about the relationship of citizenship and human rights, um, citizenship rights and human rights, and that really without the former, one loses the latter, that if, if one loses one's citizenship, one has effectively lost one's human rights, um, human rights as well. Although human rights is something that we popularly think of as a kind of naturally existing set of rights that no one can take away from us, although it's, it's obviously very contingent. In all the time that you've been doing this work, what do you think is a, is a possible way to protect ourselves against this idea that, that citizenship is merely something that one can have or not have? Your question draws us back to thinking about the powerful work of Hannah Arendt, who um, really expressed skepticism about the concept and the practice of human rights. And one of the many points she made was that uh, it is always up to states to secure and enforce them, and states measure and evaluate and value those who are their members as citizens. And so she thought that there was something at best hopelessly naive about pursuing the idea of human rights that are um, dependent solely on shared humanity. And, and most sort of memorably, she said, writing specifically about Europe and the Holocaust, said, yeah, at the very moment uh, when human rights were um, all that people had to fall back on, uh, the world saw nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of humanity. That was her point. Without states and citizenship to secure rights, they were hollow. What can we say about that now? So I think there is still, I mean, the, one of the reasons why Hannah Arendt endures is because we see so much evidence of that, that the abstract nakedness of human rights doesn't seem to make us care or us collectively care enough about the lives of people lost in the Mediterranean, the separation, the brutal, cruel separation of children from parents, the ways in which our borders are continually being fortified against the other. One of the things that I think is important going forward in that connection between citizenship and human rights is to rethink um, really the idea of sovereignty what it means to be a sovereign state, because we are organized by, into states, and the role of borders in that kind of regime. So I think there is this very simplistic idea that states are sovereign to the extent that they can control their borders. And by controlling borders, we mean excluding people. And that somehow there is a loss to us a loss of sovereignty if our borders are more porous, more open, more people are more able to traverse them. And I think that is a major obstacle to the protection of human rights because if you think that the very fact of people entering your country is a source of danger and risk and loss of control and that control is the essence of being a state – then you have set up a recipe for continual um, friction, hardship, 
and, frankly, violation of human rights because those who are seeking to enter, who are not citizens, who therefore don't have that right as citizens to enter, will be continually discredited, dehumanized, and vilified as threats to that kind of sovereignty as border control. I think we can get past it. We, we need to get past it. We are unable to sustain that kind of system given the kinds of challenges and realities that we now face. But we have to confront that. And I think the question is, can we get past that? Sally Lane is still waiting for news about her son. In northeast Syria, things seem to happen suddenly and fully, or not at all. The last time Sally heard from Jack was in May 2022, when she received a letter he'd written to her seven months prior. September 2021. Mum, more than a year has passed since the Red Cross last came, so I was surprised to find no new letter. I don't believe this is your fault or dad's, etc. I understand how difficult it is dealing with the situation. A world which doesn't allow me to buy a single book in six years isn't a world eager to maintain father-mother-son correspondence. I thank you, Mum, for carrying me for nine months, for taking care of me as a child and for taking me from place to place on the back of your bike. I thank you for all the times you made me shrimp curry and for all the dirty dishes clothes you washed for me. I wish I was beside you to try and make up to you a thousandth of what you have done for me. But to be with you in paradise is far greater. Never give up, Mum. Never think that things won't change. Things change and people come and go. So don't make your life about people. Sometimes what we see as humiliation is a way of teaching us and purifying us. You've been listening to Citizenship, a Right or a Privilege, from Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa. Thank you to Audrey Macklin, Director of the Centre for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at the University of Toronto. Asiya Herji, lawyer with Downtown Legal Services affiliated with the University of Toronto. And Nisha Kapoor, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick. And thank you to Sally Lane. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.